0: Well there's there's no other way to say it really absolutely terrible news on war in the Ukraine in the last week of course that's affecting millions of people who are scared under threat and, and displaced from their homes and in that context it didn't feel quite right to make the usual lighthearted conversation
1: Yeah what can we say what an awful week really so we just wanted to give a little space to acknowledge the human elements here and just what a really awful time this is really right now for millions of Ukrainians and millions of other people around the world directly and indirectly impacted and and, and worried.
0: Obviously, there is a markets and investing element to a lot of this, especially with sanctions and that sort of thing. But I am finding a lot of the pieces out right now look awfully tone deaf in jumping straight to talking about market impacts or just not alluding to it at all, avoiding the issue completely or doing it in a way that just fails to be human about it.
1: Yeah, I've noticed that too. I mean, one thing I've found myself doing is just absolutely diving into the headlines far too much, getting really deep into it and getting a little bit sort of overwhelmed by it all and then just sort of grabbing the nearest piece of work that I can do to actually kind of so something that I can usefully do. I imagine a lot of listeners feel a little bit similar. And my one observation would be, I don't think it's that productive for anyone to be sort of totally immersed in headlines every minute. So my one tip would be to try and take a little bit of a break away from the headlines.
0: Yeah. And of course, we can't really add any value to the interpretation of the situation. so So we won't dwell further than that. In terms of the advice we're giving clients from an investment perspective, I guess it's more really around dealing with uncertainty. Really important to focus on long term, focus on what you can control, get on top of any specific areas where, where you need to. But before all of that, of course, acknowledging the, the awfulness of the human element and the helplessness and uncertainty a lot of us will be feeling.
1: Yeah. And, and I suppose just to add to a couple of specific recommendations on, sort of on a personal level, Yeah, you know, things we can all do, of course, is donate to relevant charities. A couple of examples there, Red Cross and UNICEF, both running specific Ukraine appeals. And of course, they're set up so they're eligible for UK gift aid put links to those in the show notes. Uh, and you can also write to your MP like I did this week to sort of show your support for, for Ukraine and various actions they might take. And I'll put a template for that in the notes. So there's no easy way to segue from all that really is there, but we've been really looking forward to speaking to Joe Wiggins this week about a whole load of things. So let's get to it, shall we?
0: Absolutely. Welcome to Investment Uncut.
1: An in Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis.
0: And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com.
1: Hi, everyone. This week, delighted to be joined by investment author and director of Liquid Markets at St. James's Place. Joe Wiggins. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here.
0: Welcome, Joe. Before we kick off, could you give the listeners a sense of, I suppose, both your role at St. James's Place and also where they can find your stuff when you blog and author various pieces?
2: Yeah, of course. I changed jobs relatively recently. So until July last year, I was at Aberdeen for seven years where I was head of portfolio management in the multi-manager area. and ran a range of multi-asset funder funds. That role encompassed strategic asset allocation all the way through to fund selection Last July, I joined SJP, the wealth manager, where I'm director of liquid markets. So responsible for a team of 15 carrying out research and, and recommendations on equity and fixed income strategies. So the, the purpose, I think, of my current role is really to create an environment where the team can make good long-term investment decisions at a very broad level. I've also been writing and blogging about behavioral finance and behavioral investing topics. For the last four or five years, so I did a master's. At LSE in behavioral science. And following that, I started to write about behavioral science and how it applies to investments. And you can find my semi-regular blog posts at behavioralinvestment.com.
0: Brilliant. And we'll link to that in the show notes.
1: Thank you very much. It's a nice URL to get hold of as well. I'm a big fan of your blog and often find you're writing stuff that just kind of no one else is. Reading your blogs gave us plenty of material to sort of prep for this conversation. So really looking forward to getting into that. Just before we do, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? I always dread these questions because I think that my life
2: is much more boring than other people when I answer these questions. What should I go for? I once played and scored a goal at Villa Park. So that's the home of Aston Villa Football Club. And that was the absolute pinnacle of my sporting career. And now I'm now living vicariously through my children. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so is that the team that you support?
2: It's not actually. It was an industry event earlier in my career. These things don't really happen anymore when the company got. Taken to a football tournament
1: at Villa Park, and we played there, which was an amazing experience for someone of my limited ability. And what was it? You sort of lobbed the keeper from the halfway line, or something, or was it more kind of I think just it was nudging a it in? Overhead kick from the halfway line, as I remember it. Yeah, yeah, sounds about mm. right.
0: The only way to do it.
1: Pre-social media days. Is there any footage to back this up, or is it just? Well, unfortunately, movie? there is no footage. <laughs> There's no evidence. No evidence that, that ever happened. Probably the best bicycle kick in the world, then. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And how does it feel standing and playing on a pitch? A professional football pitch versus sitting in the stands and watching it from there? Does it feel bigger, smaller?
2: It's definitely quite stark. It just makes you realise kind of the pressure and the atmosphere and how that might affect your behaviour. Obviously, the stadium was empty because nobody knew I was playing, so they didn't turn up.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: you can you imagine what it was like with 40,000 people there?
0: Absolutely. Wow, what an experience.
1: Great. So, Joe, one area we thought we'd kick off with maybe, I mean, you wrote a blog recently talking about macro risks and how investors should sort of think about macro risks? Obviously, something that will be on the minds of a lot of investors right now, obviously, as well as the sort of awful sort of humanitarian side of what's going on, but specifically focusing on the investment piece. Give us some background on how you think investors should sort of think about macro risks.
2: I think first of all, it's important to say with an issue like Ukraine that we should all worry a huge amount about the human cost and it's tragedy, you know, people's tragedy. So we shouldn't escape that. First and foremost, the human element matters more than our investment returns. But thinking more broadly about investment, any type of macro event risk, we tend to behaviourally worry far too much about macro events. As we know, the history of equity market returns is littered with events that we were worried about that did come to pass and didn't come to pass, and they've still delivered solid returns through those. So I always think the main risk to investors is not the events themselves. Generally, it's our reaction to those events and the decisions we make because of how we feel about those events. And it's really hard to ignore them because they're so salient and available to us. We can't escape them. And also sometimes they do matter. So there will be events that occur in the future that lead to very dramatic share price falls. There will always be events that cause that. But that's the nature of equity investing. It's really difficult, if not impossible, to predict those in advance. So because sometimes they matter, we feel like we always have to act when these macro events come to pass and grab our attention. But I think there's two reasons why... We should try to ignore them. One, generally, they're just far too complex to predict. We're terrible about making forecasts for very simple events, let alone events that are chaotic and complex and, and subject to huge uncertainty. So we will be wrong an awful lot if we try and predict such events. And we just don't know also how markets to react will react. So it's one thing saying I can predict the outcome from an economic perspective or a political perspective. Then you need to know how markets will react to that. So we don't need to get our macro forecast right. We need to understand and predict what the aggregate behaviour of investors will be, which is just incredibly difficult. You think about 2016 as a great example of this, where you had Brexit and you had the US election, where Trump was elected. and In both those cases, the general consensus was wrong about the result of the votes or elections and wrong about the market reaction to those things. Just incredibly difficult to do well.
0: And it's so circular as well, isn't it? Because the first comments that you were making just then about the sort of macro is trying not to react before you know the sort of, I guess, the clear picture. And so you're not reacting in the moment. But of course, the reason markets move is because millions of people do react in that moment. And so predicting how those people who are not necessarily thinking rationally about investing are going to react is nigh on impossible.
2: Absolutely. And the second part is all about that second order thinking or reflexivity. How will investors react to this news? How are they positioned? And we're not anticipating how investors might rationally react to the news. It's how they might irrationally react to a certain set of news. So it's incredibly difficult to do well and to think that we can consistently get those decisions right. And at times we might be lucky and make some good calls. Another really good example of this is early 2020 around COVID. I'm pretty sure at the start of that, year if someone had shown me in advance the economic data for the year ahead which was significantly worse than anyone had ever seen in their lifetime and charts were no longer valid because the scale was no longer appropriate you would have made some quite drastic investment decisions risk off decisions and been entirely wrong over the course of the year these things are just too complicated and too complex for us to
1: make large decisions with confidence about I think Mary and I are nodding along here, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are as well. But I guess the question on my mind is, why does so many presentations in our industry start with sort of macro update or macro forecast? Or why is so much time and effort get invested in this area given that?
2: I think it's this circular relationship between the industry communicates around this stuff and then people feel they need to see it. So it becomes like the the default response is something's happening, you have to act. Investors require their asset manager to have an opinion on it. Asset managers know they have to have an opinion. Otherwise, investors will think that they're disregarding major risks and issues. So it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. and It's really difficult to escape because if you end up saying there's this major event going on, it's all over the news, everyone's talking about it. And you're the person saying to your investors, actually, I don't think we should do anything about it because we've got no edge in talking about these things. And they're going to say, well, all these other people are talking very intelligently about it and you're not. Why am I going to invest with you? It's a really difficult situation and one we find it difficult to escape. But generally speaking, we we talk far too much about these macro events than our behavior and how we make good decisions through time. It's much more interesting as well. Talking about doing nothing in investor behaviour is generally quite dull compared to more exciting macro related issues, whatever they may be.
0: But of course doing nothing is itself a conscious choice. I think we've talked about that previously on the podcast. So it's not that doing nothing is a we don't understand this issue or we don't think that there's a big issue happening. It's we need to wait and see or actually we think this could be quite short term. But yeah, you're right. Talking about doing nothing feels boring, but actually it's just as much a conscious decision as piling into an asset that's just fallen.
2: Yeah, doing nothing is one of those things that's simple but not easy. A nice analogy of this in a study about action bias and goalkeepers in penalty kicks in football, where love that one. Most of the time it gets kicked down the middle, but the goalkeeper dives because if they don't dive, people will say, why didn't you dive for it? And if you stand in the middle and the player kicks it to your left or right, it looks like you didn't even try. So even though the probabilities are in favor of you just standing still, your incentives are aligned with you diving.
1: There's actually a surprising number of quite good football analogies in this whole area, isn't there? I've read at least maybe three or four other ones that you've written, various elements of football. It's a sort of study of psychology in many ways, as well as a game, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That that combination of luck and skill in sport as well is very analogous to investment, although the balance might be slightly different, still have those factors involved. If you're saying that investors often spend too much time on macro, I guess one thing that I think you've written that you feel is worth spending time on is investment beliefs. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about why you see those as being so important and what productive things investors can do around that. I've probably bored people a lot in recent years about talking about process over outcomes in our line of work like
2: generally speaking nobody really cares about process they just care about outcomes and past performance and that dominates our decision making so I've always said like you really need to focus on process to make sure we're tr- at least attempting to make good decisions but the more I thought about it the more I realized that actually process is critical but it's nothing without beliefs so you need some beliefs that are underpinning any process that you put together so process is just a way of enacting your beliefs a belief set is a foundation stone or north star about the type of process you might enact so let's say i'm a value investor and believe that investors frequently misprice certain types of securities because of behavioral limitation that's a belief about investing it might be right it might be wrong but that's a belief and then i can build a process to capture that so I screen the universe and build a model around the companies but the process is only relevant if i have a belief before it There needs to be a reason as to why i'm doing it but there are a range of problems with beliefs and how they're used or not used in investing. One is that we shouldn't believe that they're immutable. So all of us now believe stuff about investing that's wrong and will be proven to be wrong in the future. So there's a tough balance between having conviction in your beliefs and being willing to change your mind. And that's a really difficult thing to strike correctly. And two is just being too vague. A lot of investors will have beliefs that are just incredibly vague and don't tell us anything about their investment approach. This is akin to someone saying they're not religious but they are spiritual it tells you something but it doesn't tell you much really about what they believe so something like in investment a good example of this is people who say they're a growth at reasonable price investor that's sort of a belief but it doesn't really tell you anything it's so vague and nebulous as to be quite
1: meaningless definitely yeah but just to interrupt just quickly i, mean, I think that's particularly prevalent among pension schemes quite often like you often see belief statements like active management can add value above a benchmark but carries additional risks kind of thing and it's a bit like what does that say that's not something you can build a process around.
0: Beliefs is a bit of a sort of almost passion subject of mine in terms of I think it's so-called decision making and in sticking with your decisions in terms of riding through periods of volatility I think if you're investing consistent with your beliefs there's something you can sort of pin your decisions to which is super helpful but I'm really interested in your views about or what you just said about the layers of beliefs if you like because I think that particularly where you're trying to agree beliefs within a group of people which I realize isn't quite the same when you're talking about an individual investor perhaps a couple though investing very high level beliefs I think are quite easy for people to all agree to because they're vague enough that you can get that sort of level of buy-in obviously to the other extreme if you were very, very prescriptive on your beliefs, and there was only sort of almost one stock you could hold, that's probably going too far and much more difficult for lots of people to buy into. How far down that spectrum do you think is the right level, if you've got any views on that?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I think it depends slightly on the type of team you have and the type of organisation that you're in. So if you're in, let's say you're a small boutique asset manager running a very narrow range of products with a very distinct philosophy, and I think you can drill quite far down into terms of beliefs, and it helps to have a pretty consistent belief set across the team obviously you want a level of cognitive diversity in how you think but it helps if you all believe in the underpinnings of what you're trying to achieve I think when you're a consultancy or an asset owner you've naturally got a bigger team and a larger spread of beliefs I think you then need to have some foundation stone beliefs which help to align your thinking but you do allow for a broader array of interpretations of that that's a bit woolly in itself but I think it's dangerous if you have a big team and you're very strident on specifically what you believe because I think you disenfranchise a lot of people you cut out the diversity of thought you need in a larger team
0: and I suppose similarly if you are an individual investor looking for I guess it's probably more likely in an actively managed fund you actually want that manager to have set out their beliefs sufficiently that you know whether you align with their beliefs or not. Otherwise, if you've got very vague beliefs and you invest in a fund, but you have a slightly different interpretation of the more detailed version of the beliefs, you could end up being in something that's really not what you expected. And clearly, that doesn't sound like a good idea.
2: Absolutely. and I think that the ability of investors to own strategies and particularly active strategies for the long term is about setting the right expectations. So if you have discordant beliefs about what you
1: think, what the manager thinks at the start, that's very unlikely to lead to a strong long-term investment relationship. This is a point you've written about quite a lot, isn't it? That you've got to think as much about the long-term behavioral traits of yourself as an investor and try and align them to make them as sort of productive as possible. So I guess you're saying getting those beliefs aligned is really important because that enables you to hold on to your investments, whichever ones you choose, which is kind of half the battle really
0: yeah one of
2: the related points of that also about beliefs and that long-term thinking is that i hear lots of managers maybe all of them 90 percent of them say that they're long-term investors as a belief but you can kind of count on one hand the number that actually are genuinely long-term investors and create an environment that supports that and that's mainly there's a friction between incentives and beliefs they might want to be long-term investors but if everyone is incentivized about the short run outcomes And you want to keep your job, then you become captured by that as well. So you have these long term beliefs, but they're inconsistent with the incentive structure you have within
1: a firm or indeed within the broader industry. Yeah, that's just a kind of ubiquitous platitude, really, isn't it? That you just see like every set of beliefs, it's almost copy paste. We're a long term investor. We believe in a long term kind of thing. Everyone seems to think that they're the long term people and everyone else is not long term somehow, but absolutely everyone says that it means nothing. I believe you always be challenged with why so why do you
2: believe it is there evidence to support it and then how so how are you going to enact it in that process
0: so I suppose as an investor looking at the beliefs of lots of different funds that you're choosing between you're almost just looking for the ones that aren't in every list of beliefs that tells you the real differences between them yeah actually
2: and, and sometimes it will be things that you naturally might not be disposed to or you might not believe but if it's distinctive then it's much more worth pursuing than kind of
1: General comments that you hear from everyone don't really mean a great deal. Yes, it's almost like you're looking out for stuff where a manager or an investor is actually getting off the fence with a belief and stating a belief where the opposite belief would actually also be a valid thing to say. Whereas quite often the beliefs are kind of just truisms, like we believe that for every return there's a risk or something, which you wouldn't have something that was the other side of that. Whereas you can articulate other ones where you could genuinely have the other side of it as well. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Joe, you said when you first started speaking about beliefs, you were talking about the sort of process in terms of decision making and i wonder if we can sort of turn a bit to decision making now and particularly your insights in terms of behavioral issues with decision making i mean do you have any sort of initial thoughts on i know you've looked at this a lot the behavioral challenges with decision making and how those all sort of set out
2: a well, general view is that when I mean, we talk a lot about behavioral biases and behavioral issues and challenges um, it's become much more commonplace in the industry to talk about them do i think anyone does anything about them not really So it's nice to chat about, nice to talk about, and nice to say you've read Thinking Fast and Slow. But seeing them applied is difficult and rare. And it's really not easy to do. It's not that people are kind of missing an open goal here, but you have to really try if you want to apply them. If you think about the industry structure, it is a breeding ground for our worst behavioural traits. So if I think about what actually matters and drives investor decision-making, so so loss aversion, short-term loss aversion is a massive driver of behaviour, and what do we get from the industry is a constant stream of updates on markets and financial news counting down to the next day's market open. And outcome bias, another kind of chronic problem in investing, particularly fund investing. So the obsession with past performance, despite the fact that we know that strong past performance generally a prelude to weaker future returns and vice versa. And as you talk about a lot on the podcast, stories as well, stories drive our behavior probably more than anything else. And financial markets are a story generating Machine, just narratives spewing out left, right and centre kind of to divert our behaviour. And the other point is, is behavioural, but I suppose more related back to classical economics as well, just the incentive structure is not well aligned with being a sensible long-term investor. All of these issues come into this melting pot, which makes it really challenging to make good decisions in that environment, it is incredibly tough. And the general view is that someone who is engaged with markets on a daily basis has got a much tougher challenge than someone who, for whatever reason, is just not engaged with markets. On the horizon, they've got some sensible investments
1: in place. And that lack of engagement means you don't have the same level of behavioral challenge. You were writing about this recently, weren't you? This idea that things like low-cost transparency control might sound like good things and usually thought of to be good things but can be just awful from a behavioral perspective because you constantly change the funds you're in the investments you're in you're checking it every five minutes all that sort of stuff gives you a negative behavioral environment around you i was on the train going up
2: to the london office last week and there was an advert i saw which was some type of investment platform offering your first 500 pound share trade for free i was just looking at it thinking that's going to be disastrous and It was just like a, it was like a gambling advert trying to hook you in with the first free bet nothing to do with good investment outcomes but everything to do with our ability to access investments easily have transparency and have optically low costs. so those types of behavioral challenges for investors are greater than they've ever been we really need to be a bit more forthright on how to deal with and manage those
0: so it feels Joe as if you think about The theoretical way of solving a problem, you start with sort of education and understanding the problem and then you move through to the solution. So it feels like from what you said, education isn't necessarily a problem now. It's well enough versed in the industry, there's enough books that are fairly accessible for non-experts to understand the issue. What's then the apart from the fact that it's just really hard, maybe that is the main barrier, what do you think are the other barriers to taking good action? If people understand the problem, why are they not then walking the walk?
2: Yeah, partly comes back to the incentives and certainly within The industry incentives are for asset managers to generate flows, in many cases to please shareholders over relatively short time horizons. And you do that by caring about short-term performance. So you want to drive money into things that are performing well over the short term. You fire managers that are underperforming because you've got those short-term incentives that you have to meet. I think there are investment firm structures that are more suited to long-term investing without the same incentive alignment problems. But I think there's also just this inherent friction between we hear these behavioral lessons. But when you're living through situations, when you're checking your portfolio every day, when there's a macro event going on, it's really, really easy to throw those out of the window. So I sure you've got a plan in place for how you deal with those things. You just get captured by emotion and how you feel about something. And when we have stressed or panic situation, our time horizon collapses pretty swiftly. So you go from a 20-year horizon to a 20-minute time horizon. So everything changes in that moment when it's all about gut feel, it's all about system one thinking not longer term deliberate thinking so there's that emotional piece as well about how much we engage with markets but we do generally speaking although we are aware of behavioral issues i don't think many people sit down and plan how are we going to deal with these behavioral issues and what steps can we put in place to become better investors
0: Groupthink aside, because groupthink is another challenge of groups making decisions, at least if you've got a group making a decision and having to come to that decision together, some of those biases maybe are slightly reduced in a sense, because if you think about that sort of 20 second reaction or 20 minute reaction, if you have to voice it out loud to someone, even if it's one other person and explain why you think that reaction is the one to take, they might have the same view as you and you've not massively mitigated your risk there. But sometimes thinking things out loud feel different, don't they, to thinking it in your head. And when you've got an app on your phone and you can just make the switch and it's only you that's deciding, no one's there to listen or to hear you say it out loud.
2: I mean, friction is a really useful thing for long-term investors. And friction is one of those things where everyone wants to remove friction from every de- decision we make. But in investing, it's generally a bad thing. and I have this split relationship with committees that obviously when you're working somewhere, and you have to go to another committee. You think, oh, not another committee. But actually, from a long-term investment perspective, The right type of committee puts the right type of friction and challenge in place that means you can make sensible long-term decisions and avoid making hot state decisions that you might make if it was just you sitting there
1: looking at a screen. So friction in investment can sometimes be quite useful if it's applied correctly. Have you seen examples, Joe, of organisations or people who've done a real sort of behavioural audit, if you like, of their investing environment in a sort of methodical way to try and identify all the ways that could be affected?
2: It tends to be quite
1: piecemeal so I've never seen
2: anything that's comprehensive across the piece what I've found and one of the problems is there's the behavioral ideal and there's the reality of the day-to-day and the reality of the incentives that you face and the requirements of your clients as well and you have a variety of pressures on you which means you probably can't be as behaviorally pure as you you might be something I found useful and I think it's a good behavioral tool is a pre-mortem so this is like Gary Klein's idea that this is widely misused as a tool the basics of it are you sit down hopefully with other people maybe people who haven't been involved in the decision everyone individually imagines that you've made this decision and in two or three years time it's been a total failure and you write down all the reasons why it's been a disaster so it's quite useful because it highlights this is not a risk assessment it's different to a risk assessment it's highlighting reasons why something has been a failure Both you get different viewpoints from different people, it tends to be less hierarchical because you're emboldening people to tell me why it's failed. So it's quite effective. And also it sets expectations correctly before you make a decision. So if you're thinking about things that could go badly wrong, that's quite helpful in when you go through difficult periods with an investment. If you look back at something like a pre-mortem and think, was this something we considered? Was this something we thought about when we were making that decision? So that's quite a nice behavioural tool. And I think one of the other common Behavioural management features of particular fund investing, which I'm not sure is deliberate from a behavioural perspective or not. It's just blending managers with different styles. So combining managers alongside each other who run money in different ways. It's talked about generally from diversification, additional return sources, but it's also a behavioural trick in that if you blend well, then when one manager is going through a difficult period, it's likely that another manager might be enjoying a a better period. So it's more likely you'll sit through the difficult performance from the struggling manager. Than it is if you're just holding one manager that's going through their inevitable bad three year spell when you feel all sorts of pressure to sell it. So that's quite a useful behavioral trick that people maybe unknowingly use to make themselves more likely to be long term investors.
0: Joe, you put out a piece, I think it was last week or the week before, on why it's both the best and worst time to be an investor. And that really made me and Dan smile because actually, on the last few podcast episodes, when we ask all of our guests what's the most underappreciated thing about investing, we usually get the answer about it being easy. It's easier than you think. It's easier to access these days. And then Robin Wigglesworth said, it's just really hard. It's just really hard. And people don't appreciate that. And it's true, isn't it? It's very easy and it's very hard and in quite different ways. I wondered if you could just explain what was behind your piece.
2: Most of what I hear, which is true, is that investors have never had it so good. It's easy to be an investor and You've got low-cost, simple options that anyone can invest into. You've got a huge array of options available. You've got transparency, so you no longer do you not see what you're invested in. You don't get a valuation once a year. And you've got control, so you can change whenever you like. And you've got great free information, even just think about blogs. You've got a huge amount of valuable education, like the stuff that Dan writes on his blog. is hugely valuable and insightful for investors, and it's freely available. So all those things are fantastic for investors, but for each of them, comes with drawbacks and costs i don't think there's anything more toxic behaviourally for investors than having transparency and control so the ability to be a long-term investor when you're checking your portfolio every day and experiencing that volatility it's incredibly tough so the more we engage with our investments i think the more likely we are to make poor short-term decisions and on the information point there's lots of great information out there there's also a torrent of absolute nonsense which you have to deal with and People will read, there's lots of investing heroes on Twitter showing off all sorts of trading charts about how successful they are. And it's really easy to be distracted and be head-turned by that when you got some people saying long-term approach, don't do too much, compounding, other people saying I've invested in XYZ stock, look at these charts, I've made a fortune. It's really easy to be distracted. So for all of these benefits, there are behavioral costs. And some of those behavioral costs, I think, outweigh the benefits. And we can only really benefit from those advantages that we've seen in recent years if we make
1: an attempt to control the behavioral limitations of them. One of the points you made that I thought was really interesting, I hadn't thought about it loads before, was the idea of choice actually being a bad thing because you kind of get FOMO basically that there are so many funds you're never invested in the one that's doing the best at any given time. I sort of feel that a bit because I kind of feel like over my career there's been this big change from investors holding portfolios of stocks to holding portfolios of funds. Like it can be quite common now for individual investors and pension funds institutions to hold 10, 15, 20 different funds. And that is quite tricky from a behavioral perspective because there's always someone underperforming, always someone you can change for another manager, isn't there? There's always a new fund coming out, someone doing really well. That choice is actually, yeah, is a bad thing.
2: Absolutely. It can be paralyzing at times when you're trying to make the choice or it can lead to overactivity when you're always fitting between the latest staff or manager because your manager is underperforming. There's something better available and you can move to it easily. There's no friction involved in you moving from your underperforming manager or your adequately performing manager to one who's currently shooting the lights out. It makes your choice problematic. So it's much more likely that through time we're going to be disappointed <laughs> because we've got so much choice. We didn't quite pick the best thing.
0: The other thing is complexity, which I know you've also helpfully written about not long ago. And as soon as you're thinking about all of these options that you've got and you get FOMO and you try and explore lots of different options, and then you're working out how do I split my money between all these different options and how do I maintain it over time? That just feels painful to me. But I guess people are going down that route, aren't they?
2: I find complexity in investing fascinating, particularly the amount of people who are willing to invest in things they do not understand and cannot possibly fathom how it works. I was reading about the fund that's being accused of being a fraud, says Infinity Q, incredibly complex fund. And aside from what malfeasance may or may not have gone on, why would you buy something when you've got no idea how it's making money? You have no frame of reference about how it generates returns. And I can understand, I know exactly why asset managers do it because they can charge more for it and they can differentiate themselves and it can't be as easily commoditized. There's not a great need for investors to become involved in it because there's more than enough simpler options that they can understand to deliver on their objectives through time. So
1: complexity is a real problem that investors just find it quite attractive. And I think one of the key things about complexity is just so alluring and we're all guilty of it i'll be honest i'm guilty of it sometimes as a consultant it's just there's just a huge mental barrier to presenting a really simple solution like a one fund portfolio or something you just you have this urge to like add a couple more funds in sort of thing or just make it more complicated it's really hard i think it's like you were saying a complex solution to something just looks and feels nice it's worth more money it's kind of just goes down better we are towards that
0: i suppose key message is if you don't understand it it probably isn't the only way of getting a similar result. So shop around a bit and find something you do understand.
1: I
2: generally think that if you, can you understand what you're investing in in basic terms to a 10 year old? If you can't do that, you should be pretty worried about what with an equity or a bond. You can explain the basics quite well. If you go into a very complex, levered, um, derivative laden strategy it becomes much more difficult and also really hard to hold on to for the long term. You just don't understand what's happening or why it's happening.
1: We probably need more people pushing back against complexity, don't we? Because I just don't think you see it often enough because there's, there's almost this kind of shared belief in complexity or shared kind of almost like an emerter around it. It's like, don't call it out enough. It's, it's hard to call things out. But I suppose people ought to be more empowered to say, that looks too complex. Couldn't you do a simpler version of it? The problem with that is it makes you look like you don't understand it. <laughs> so you get, don't worry about it, your complaints. You just don't understand it. And we do.
0: Yeah, I was thinking that human nature is not to admit that you don't understand something because you feel like that makes you less intelligent than the person next to you. But actually, they're probably just as much in the dark. So speaking
2: of general resonance, I found in my career for people to say, I'm outside of the table to a fund manager. Yeah, don't quite understand what you're saying there. (laughs) There's much more willingness to kind of, yeah, I understand that. I get this.
0: Absolutely. We're drawing towards the end of this episode. Really keen to know what you're most sort of looking out for over the next 12 months.
2: I suppose a couple of things. One, investment related one not we'll start with the non-investment thing just behaviorally as we i think come out of the latest wave of covid uh, and life returns something towards more like normality interested to see what behavioral norms stick and what don't stick and the changes we've had in our lives over the last or two years really so wearing masks working from home what of those will become commonplace and which of those will be abandoned I think I'm getting the answer to that when I go on the train and there's very few people who wearing masks anymore. <laughs> that, that doesn't feel like a norm, at least at the moment, going to stick. It's interesting to observe how much structural changes there is because of what we've experienced over the last couple of years. My kind of gut feel is that if things are perceived to be an, inc- an obvious inconvenience to them, then they'll probably be dropped. If there is a perceived advantage, they might persist more. So I think that the working from home, working from the office split, hopefully it's more of a structural change to what we were before. From an investment perspective, and obviously I don't make any investment forecasts, so I won't make one now, but my simplistic view of the world, I think I find it interesting to observe what happens if the cost of money increases. I think a huge amount of investment results, investment activity over the last decade or more has been driven by the fact that price of money has been pretty much zero. I think if the price of money or the price of cash or the return you get from cash was to become three or four percent and that's definitely not forecast but it's just something that could happen what happens to everything else in that environment so if i'm getting four percent on cash what does it mean for my required return on a corporate bond or government bond or high yield bond or my equity valuation or god forbid a cryptocurrency how does that change the dynamic so again it may not happen but i think that
1: is really important for how we think about the valuations of, of different asset classes we were trying to talk you into giving us a forecast there, but you've neatly sort of dodged it. I'm <laughs> <We're> not <laughs> going to pin a rates up to 3% call on you for that. Just something that could happen. Joe, what's the one thing that you'd like listeners to take away from this episode? Hopefully, as has been clear, I'm just going to repeat probably what I've said
2: before, is that we just need to think more about behavior. So the decisions we make and why we make them matter probably far more than anything else. And being a good decision maker is hard, particularly in financial markets, because of what we've talked around the stimulus and the stories which really encourage us to make poor choices so we need to plan how we're going to deal with those behavioral challenges that we're going to face and that's the most important part to being a good long-term investor is just having that plan in place and understanding how we're going to deal with those behavioral issues.
0: I sort of teed you up for this when when I spoke earlier but what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing?
2: Going back to what you spoke doing nothing is just incredibly powerful. It's not lazy or negligent. It's an active decision. So on the provisor, we do sensible things at the start of our investment journey. Then doing nothing is a real skill and an advantage. And we place far too much value on activity. And the industry does perpetuate that with the noise it creates. And investing is unlike many activities in that you can do better than very busy and intelligent people
1: by doing very little. I probably need to appreciate that a bit more.
0: That's a great yeah. message.
1: Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, so underappreciated there. Joe, what kind of stuff are you reading or listening to? Any recommendations for us for books and podcasts, et cetera? So, podcast, I've been listening
2: to Think with Pinker on BBC. So, Stephen Pinker's podcast series about thinking and decision making. And he's got an incredible contact book. So, he's had Charlie Munger on there, Philip Tetlock, Daniel Kahneman's guests talking about different aspects of decision-making and thinking are the 30-minute chunks as well, so very digestible as people are returning to the commute. That's been a favourite at the moment. A book I've been reading recently is called Framers by Kenneth Kukier, I think it's pronounced, and a couple of other guys. And they also wrote a book called Big Data. So this is about how the frame or mental models that we use influence our decision-making and our worldview. It's particularly relevant at the moment. It seems like we're in such a binary world where every event is viewed through a particular lens based on your political leaning or affiliation. So there's no middle ground in the opinions we hold. So thinking about how the world is viewed by different people and why and how you might communicate with those people in a slightly different way, if you can understand the frame or mental models they're using, it's quite relevant for today.
0: Fantastic. Thank you.
1: That sounds really good. Yeah, we'll get links to those and put them on the webpage. Joe, it's been a great conversation. Thanks so much for your time today. Really enjoyed it. Thank
0: you. Thanks, Joe. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. But join us again next week for another episode. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.